Welcome to the Coaching Through Chaos podcast, helping you conquer the chaos in your life. Your host is licensed marriage and family therapist, Dr. Colleen Mullen. Dr. Colleen has been doing what she does for almost two decades. She's a private practice owner, a chaostician, and her work or writing has been featured on countless websites. Listen in as she brings you experts in the psychology of life. They may be New York Times bestsellers, key players in their profession, or people who have overcome tremendous obstacles in life and are here to share their story to help you live your best life. Let's get to it. Stay tuned for our next chaos-crushing guest. Here is your host, Dr. Colleen Mullen. Hi, it's Dr. Colleen here, and I am back with yet another episode of the Coaching Through Chaos podcast, and I am so thrilled that you are joining me today. Now, I sound pretty energized because I am. This conversation was fun to have. My guest is pretty like-minded in how I approach systems and businesses. It was fun to talk about all this stuff with him. So my guest is Ben Preston. He's a marketer and a business strategist. His experience ranges from starting several businesses to holding a leadership role at a startup and had a position at a billion-dollar communications company. And along the way, he's even won an award for his entrepreneurship. But Ben has found that his passion is actually helping millennials figure out their paths to get to the career of their dreams. I was interested in speaking with Ben after reading his book, Harness Your Butterflies, The Young Professional's Metamorphosis to an Exciting Career. I had a lively conversation with Ben about what excites him about his work. You'll hear his passion come through when he talks about why he was even motivated to write the book, why it was important to him, and how he saw himself differently when he got feedback from his friends about how they saw his strengths rather than the ones that he thought he was bringing to the table. And we also talk about how to manage adversity when you're working on a toxic team. This is one of my favorite topics to talk with and coach my clients on. But then we wrap up the conversation with a story about how Ben learned to tap into his own vulnerability and empathy for others. He tells a story of a very simple way that he approached trying to figure out how to understand a coworker, how to put himself in someone else's proverbial shoes. You know, we can't really do that. And for some of us, no matter what we do, we will never understand fully what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. But there are sometimes simple things that we can do to put ourselves in a better position of understanding. And it's a story that for as simple as it is, what it took for him to do it, you know, just kind of stretching himself is something that I don't actually hear every day. And I really liked it. I think that you'll benefit from hearing it too and kind of realize sometimes the answers to some problems that we see in life aren't that difficult. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And we're going to get right into it now. Hey, it's Dr. Colleen here with a quick break to let you know what I've got going on over at patreon.com slash coaching through chaos podcast. That's the site where you can get some exclusive items just for supporting the show with a small contribution each month. I've got four levels to pick from, but the best value will be tier two, the Chaos Crushers tier. For signing up to be a Chaos Crusher at just $9 a month, the big thing you're going to get 
is three new self-help recordings each month done exclusively for my Patreon subscribers. You will also get a Chaos Crushing ebook and a shout out on the show for your support. Now, if you're in a position to support just a little bit more, there are ways to get even a 20-minute coaching call with me every month. Go over and check it out at patreon.com slash coaching through chaos podcast. And if you wish you could support the show, but it's just not in your budget to give a few dollars, that is perfectly okay. I am just glad that you're here with me on this podcasting journey. So let's get back into the show. Hi, Ben. Thanks for being with me on the Coaching Through Chaos podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. And I really enjoyed reading your book. You know, I like when someone finds something that works and wants to pass it on and help others with it. So can you talk a little bit about what this book means to you and why it was so important for you to write it? So I, what I have found is um, kind of talking about careers and talking about what gets people excited and, and kind of what they want to do with their, you know, with their lives everyone has a unique sort of thing that makes them like sort of talk endlessly and people are like, all right, enough, enough, enough. What I found was pretty early on, I was very passionate about kind of career development. I I worked in marketing. I started off in communications and marketing. Um, What I found was I gravitated toward helping other people figure out what they wanted to do with their passion and their purpose. And kind of what backed it up for me was I, my early career was a little bumpy. Like I had sort of like what you would say was like the ideal job, the ideal lifestyle, but I still wasn't really feeling fulfilled. So I was kind of on this journey to find out what makes people fulfilled, what makes people love their careers. And with all that key learning, I was like, this is stuff that I feel like people really need to kind of hear or at least get a different perspective on how to do that. Um, So yeah, that's kind of the overview as to why I wrote it. And what have you found since you've been teaching people these things about themselves? Yeah, what I found is that everyone kind of has a very similar, I know like there's so many things that make people diverse, but from what I've seen, a lot of people have a similar experience where as they're growing up, they have somebody in their life, either a mentor or a parent or a teacher who encourages them to do what they love. But then the the natural question is, how do I do that? What is the thing? How do I figure out what I want to do? when no one's, you know, your entire life, you're given an instruction manual where you go, you know, from first grade to second grade, from second grade to third grade. And then once you're, you know, out of grade school, you go into high school and then college, and then you get a job. So it's like, you're really, your life is pretty scripted. And in that, there's not a lot of, you know, kind of like vulnerability to figure out what you want to do and what's exciting to you because your life is so scripted. And what I've seen is that's actually a lot of people's experiences is they have, you know, unless their parents are, (laughs) are very like, you know, you need to be a doctor. Like for the most part, people are being told, do what you love, find what you love to do. But then on the other hand, their lives are totally scripted. So they're not really given the tools to kind of figure out how to do that. Um, And so that's a lot of the people that I work with, like that's the biggest thing that we do is we kind of go back to fundamentals and say like, what do you like to do? You know, like what are the things when you were little, what were the things that you, not, not that we go through that every single time, but like when you are younger, it doesn't really matter if your job is feasible. Theoretically, you're like, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a marine biologist. I want to be whatever. And it's just from a place of passion and excitement rather than feasibility or education or whatever. And so kind of like taking a step back with people and saying, what are the things that, that right now, and it, you know, absolutely today, what are the things that you find exciting and how can we ju- you know, create a career from there as opposed to following this script or following this formula that people say that you're supposed to follow? 
Well, that makes a lot of sense. I know that's what I actually find as well in my work with clients, that scripted life, right? People get told, do what you love, and then they don't get told how you might do that because Mm -hmm. it's not usually along the script. And what you were just saying about kind of going back to what did you love as a child? And, you know, I wanted to ask you about how people get stuck with thinking about, well, I just need motivation to go on and do this thing that they want to do, but they often can't find it. You know, it's that thing that they're looking for. Is that one of your strategies for helping them find their motivation? Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. So the thing that I think is interesting about motivation, when you when you don't want to do something, it's considered motivation. And when you want to do something, it's considered inspired. So <laughs> like when I, you know, when I was writing this book, I nobody told me that I needed to write a book. It really wasn't when I was younger, wasn't even really part of when I say younger, I mean like in college, wasn't even something that was really part of my like I was never wanting to be a writer. <laughs> I was always like, I'm gonna be a marketer and I'm gonna be, you know, making five million dollars when I'm, you know, 50. Like it was a very <laughs> set in my mind that's what was gonna happen. But what I found is a lot of people, when they when they need to do something, it's and this is kind of one of the advices that I have in the book. One of my personal favorite um, things is when when you look at something that you need to do, it's very rarely something that you are excited to do, and so it's, it you takes a lot of quote unquote motivation to do that, as opposed to you know if you want to do something, if you find you know even if you need to do something and you find a wanting or or a thing in there that you can say this is what I want to do it becomes inspired. So what I usually tell clients um, that I work with is if there's something that you come up against, let's say uh, like a work situation, because I work with a lot of uh, people who experience toxic work cultures and things like that, um, where they don't like their jobs or there's a piece of their job, like they don't like working with their manager or something like that. And they're, you know, I need to have this report done. I need to do these things. I need to do these. You know, they have a list of things that they need to do. And as they kind of beat the drum of that need, it becomes harder and harder for them to motivate themselves because they're viewing it as like a chore. Um, And usually I kind of redirect that conversation and make it more of a kind of like, you know, like when you're little and there's a lot of childhood stuff in here, but um, when you're little and you, when your parents say do this and you're like, why, 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 why? And that's kind of what I tell my clients is ask yourself that question until you get to the point where you're actually like, finding the silver lining, like there's a million things that could go wrong around you. And they're probably in any, any day, there's probably, you know, five out of 10 things that aren't going your way. But if you can kind of realign to that higher thing that you want to do by asking that why question, it becomes a lot easier to become inspired action as opposed to motivation. Um, So kind of an example of like what that might look like just really quickly Mm -hmm. um, is I recently worked with a company um, with all this COVID stuff and they're trying to figure out how to get their employees to be profitable um, obviously working remotely. So they tell their employees, um, fill out these timesheets. We want to know what you do every minute of every day. And so I had a client that I was working with that it was really tough for that individual to do that because they're like, I don't like being micromanaged. I don't like doing all this stuff. And I'm like, all right, so let's change this because what your company is trying to do, although I, I agree, like I don't think that that's the right way to track people's time and attention. What you really are, what you're really upset about is the fact that people are trying to tell you what to do and you like being autonomous, mm-hmm. we agree. So then they're, you know, they're going down this rabbit hole of, well, I'm not motivated to do this. And I'm like, think about, so if, the more time that you complain about not filling out your timesheet, the more time it's going to take you to fill out your timesheet. And I said, if that takes you five minutes in the day and you get to spend the next seven and a half hours or 7.5, you know, per whatever hour, a number of right. hours in the day, 
you're wasting time doing the things you love because you're sitting here complaining and pushing it back against your manager. So like when you're thinking about your job, why, you know, if I'm, if I'm trying to get motivated and inspired, if I knock that off, like if I say, I'm going to do, you know, what, I'm going to put 10 minutes in that really quick. Maybe it's not going to be as detailed as they want to, but the reason I'm going to do it is because I want to get to what I, my actual job and the things that I love doing. So it's almost like eating your vegetables before you get dessert type of thing. And you mentioned the toxic work environment. And in that, like that kind of example, right? You know, especially when somebody's already in a work environment, working on a team, maybe that doesn't feel good to them. Like it's not like really where they want to be, or they thought the job was going to be something else. You know, I'm hearing you say that as far as finding the motivation to do that is really kind of like whittle it down until you find as you said, the silver lining, the benefit to you for doing it, right? What do you get out of it? There are so many times that I talk with, I work with a lot of people right now in their 20s and early 30s at the point of career change. And I know that that's a lot of people that listen to the show. And I can't tell you how many times I hear about people talk about these teams that I'm just like, how are these companies even functioning when I hear the stories of what people are telling me about the just the, the drama and the chaos and the bad relationships among people that are supposed to be working as a team. You know, when someone finds themselves in that situation, right, there's already the motivation going on that maybe the job wasn't what they thought they were going to have. And then maybe like a new team member comes on and it's just that toxic person that kind of poisons the team. How do you tell them to kind of make sense of that? How do you help them make sense of having a strategy for how they're going to survive in that environment when they don't have the option of just kind of like leaving right away, right? They have to do their due diligence and finding something or creating that thing that's going to work for them. The biggest thing, and I, I love, this is going to sound really weird. I love the topic of like toxic teams and toxic environments, not because I think that that's what people, like I, I would never advocate that people find a toxic situation and go <laughs> into it. But what uh -huh. I love about it is the level of adversity, it, it creates us, it, it forces us to focus and to figure out what we really want. And so like, you might say, okay, I don't, I don't, obviously I know that I don't want a toxic team, but you almost like, if you have a journal and on one side, you write down the things that I absolutely hate about my company or they, you know, I hate about this person. I hate about this person. If you would have flipped those over and make them positives, you have a list of, of things that you, that, that you would not have been able to articulate otherwise. Mm -hmm. So one example is, um, I'll just take me for example. Like I had a really bad relationship with one of my supervisors a while ago, a couple of jobs ago. And they had told me to kind of go against my ethics, go against the things that felt right in my gut. Uh -huh. And for me, it was one of those things where I was like, okay, I can either, I have two options. One, I can go against my own intuition and my own gut and my own kind of feeling of, of ethics and morality and things like that. Or I can stand up and say, this is what I believe in. In that experience, although it was adversity, it was something that I could look back on and say, I'm glad that I had that experience because there's so much, there's so much more learning in that. And there's so much joy and fulfillment that comes out of that, that people don't even realize. Like you don't realize that how warm you can be if you aren't outside in the blizzard. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I, well, in making those tough decisions, I literally just recorded something yesterday. Making tough decisions gives you a better future, an easier future. If you can figure out how to do those tough things today, right? So that person who stands up and says, like yourself, who stands up and says, this doesn't work for me. Yeah, totally. You are, you're making that, you know, you have to be vulnerable. You have, you know, your, your nerves get spike, your anxiety 
anxiety spikes and you have to go in and do something like that. And no matter what the outcome is, it's always going to be better than you having gone along to something that does not fit for you. So that's, that's great. Like teaching them the, the flip side of what do you get out of this as you survive this environment to what are the, and then how do you identify, right? You take that list of horrible things that are going on in the workplace. And that gives you the list of the things that you go into with your wants for the next job. You want these things rather than running away from the other ones. I, I really uh, am in line with that. And, you know, my audience knows I always talk about like, you know, my life motto has been like, I keep just doing what I think is the right thing to do. And it seems to, seems to work. It seems to help me keep going forward. Looking at now kind of taking a little step back as somebody, as they're finding their career, right? You have kind of come up with these terms of career strategists and the career experimenters. And, you know, I, I would love for you to share how, what those mean, how you define those two categories and, and what you found in working with people to help them figure out how to find a more defined path, right? And is it okay for someone to stay like one way or the other? Um, as I was researching for this book, like one of the biggest things that I was trying to figure out is I'm not the first person that's trying to trying to solve this problem of like purpose and whatever. So as I started researching, I found I came across um, this really interesting psychology research um, from this company. I can't remember. Uh, it was like a psychology bulletin. I, I have it in the book, the actual citation. But they had um, in their research, they found that people fell into one of two categories. One category where people believed that their purpose and their fulfillment in a job was fluid, which meant that they could find um, purpose or uh, fulfillment in any role, no matter what it was. And then there was another group of people that they found that had a very fixed uh, kind of, I don't want to say fixed mindset, but a fixed idea of what purpose was. And they felt that those individuals that had that fixed perspective, the only way that they could find fulfillment and purpose was by going from job to job to job. And what they found in this research was that people that fell into, and, and the, ca the first category of people was the career strategist, what I labeled career strategist, that wasn't their turn, that was a turn just to be clear on that. That was something oh. that they, they labeled the people in the psychology research. Um, they said that those individuals tended to stay at companies longer and didn't bounce around as much. So people that were, if you think about people that stay at their careers 10, 15, 20 years, yes. most likely are, are falling into that category. So I labeled those people career strategists because they're more, their decision-making is more based on career progression as opposed internally within their company. And so it was more of a strategic decision internally, as opposed to the second group of people that viewed that things were more fixed and that they had one purpose and that their, their goal was to find it those people tended to jump around from career to career to career until they found the job that they wanted. And then they stayed with that job for the rest of their career, typically. Um, they're in the research, they found that both people, both types of people were equally successful in their careers in terms of how people define success with like money, status, power, that sort of thing. Both, both individual groups were successful. And I don't inherently believe that there's one wrong way to look at either category. It's like, if you're in one group, you kind of look at the other group and you go, that sounds miserable to me. But I, I also feel like people kind of bounce. I, I view it more as a spectrum as opposed to, you know, you're in one category, you're in another. Like there's some days where I am at, you know, working and I'm like, this is exactly what I want to do for the rest of my life. Or I can find happiness no matter where I am. And then the next day it's, I'm an, <laughs> I need to find another job and I'm out of here. So it kind of depends, but I think people are, are more gravitate towards one 
one of those categories um, more often than not. And I think the the thing that's really interesting is um, there's there's kind of like some cool some cool connections that can or cool appreciation that can be viewed on both sides. Like on one hand, the people that are more the career strategists are the people who are very stable and firm and kind of the foundation that a lot of organizations build their people on and their teams mm-hmm. around are yes. those people that stay in careers for a long time. For the people that bounce around and kind of find more passion and more innovation, those are more people who are like the artists or the, I don't want to say artists because there's, there's innovators in like, let's say tech who are the same way where they stay with a company. Like if you look on Elon Musk, like he has a bigger purpose, but a lot of what he does is he, he starts a new business here. He starts a new business here. Yes. He starts a new business here. And so there's a lot of innovation in that too. I think it's, if you can find the appreciation in, in both camps and can kind of learn from them, you can say like, I fall probably more on the career experimenter, which is more of that, that fixed idea of there's one purpose that I have and I'm going to try to align with it and find a job that fits me. Um, but I can learn from the other group as well. So it's kind of, it's kind of, you can appreciate both sides. Yes. Um, and I definitely fall into the experimenter. Um, but, but it's like that thing where you're the experimenter maybe until you find that thing and then you become the strategist and have a 25 year career doing what you love. And I'm going to put a link to the research that you cite in the book. I'll put that in the show notes for people to see, because this kind of stuff is pretty fascinating, um, to hear. And I think it was great for you to point out that the research did find that no matter what category a person found themselves in, they had an, they were equally as successful, right? And so, because what I what I see um, just anecdotally among the the clients that I've had over the years is the people who find themselves as the experimenters often feel like they are doing something like something bad. Like they're like, well, how come I, you know, how come I'm just never satisfied with, with a workplace? How come this happens? Or how come I can't just like stay at the job like so-and-so did for 10 years? And it's like, well, they don't get that. They, they don't see the value yet in that they are really looking for something that means a maybe a bit more to them. I mean, obviously some of the strategists, when they have that fixed sense of purpose, they, that, that can work for them. And, uh, and that does work for them. But when they are an experimenter, it can be looked at like a lot of the tech people, right? You know, I read something years ago now that said people who go to work at Google, like the life expectancy of that position was like nine months to a year and a half, and then people would move on. And so I think people finding themselves in different roles, looking at how come I just can't get settled and be okay with something is something for them to look at and go, there's nothing wrong with me continuing to look to be more fulfilled because for whatever reason, it's not working for them at that point. Do you find that as well? Yeah. And it's actually interesting as you were talking about that, because I was like, I, I definitely was one of those people when I was in my earlier years that I was like, I don't understand how people can be at their same job. Like I was yeah. probably three, I had like three different jobs by, you know, my five year mark in my career. And I was like, how are people like still at the same company or the same job or whatever? And I yes. actually had, it was funny. I had a conversation with my friend who's a landscape architect and she is very much in the camp of wanting to stay at her company for you know a long, long time. And she had just talked to me the other day and I I like, I had a thing where I was like, I'm amazed that the fact that like, you know, she'll say, we'll kind of have like little venting sessions where she'll say this person, you know, I don't know how to deal with this and blah, blah, blah. And my, literally my response to her was, 
you could always find another job. And she's like, well, I don't think so. Like a very different way of approaching it. But yeah, it was, it's, it's, it's funny to think about too, like the number of, of people that had, like the, if you think about like jobs as like going to a buffet, like mm-hmm. I, I always am one of those people where it's like, I'm craving something. I don't know what it is, but I will find it. And that's what I'm, I'm going to test every single piece of food until I find out what I want. And that's how I categorize the experimenter category where it's like, you go to the buffet, you don't know what you want, but you know that you have a hankering for, hankering for something and you're just going to try everything. Uh-huh. And then you have the other group where it's like, they're just hungry. They just want to show up and they want to get food that sounds good to them. And they're just going to sit down and eat that. And that's what they want. And so like, there's, it's, it's kind of funny, like, just to think about the way that people approach the world. Cause I obviously fall into one category. So it's like, I look at the other half and I'm just like, how, how does that work for you? It must be interesting. I'm with you definitely on that thinking. I had other careers and things like that in my twenties and kind of restarted myself with getting educated so I could be this therapist that I wanted to be when I was 30. And now it's, it's many years later, but even in my, my role in, you know, coming up in my career as a therapist, like I, I was the experimenter. I'm like, do I want to work with these people or these people? What do I like about this? What do I not like about this? But when you're talking, but when we're looking at the people, I think also looking at how people find what, purpose or meaning means to someone is certainly different along the way. Like I have um, a brother, we are, he's adopted, but adopted at birth. So we're like eight months apart. It's a silly thing that we grew up with that we said, we're like these weird twins, right? So we're the same age, same opportunities in life and things like that. And he became Mr. Regimented, like, I'm going to go work at the county and I have a pension. He Uh buys everything on like, Hey, if I can pay it off in six months with no penalty, like I'm going to do that. And I have always been like, uh, I have no idea what the future is going to look like. Let me just go after what I want to do and try it out. And we are so different in our thinking and there's a lot. And, you know, for him value and purpose in life meant that he could have what he saw as the staples in the world, like a pension, a home, you know, he wanted to have uh, a family young, you know, he did all those things. And for me, that was never like something that was on my, I mean, of course now, like, I'm like, oh yeah, like all the, the assets that you get when, you know, you get to that level. But you know, it wasn't like, oh, I want to get a job with a pension. I really didn't think that far ahead um, when I was younger. And uh, uh, so it's kind of like looking at like what people find value in. And for me, it was more like the sat- the personal satisfaction that I would get out of the work that I was doing every day. Did I get up and look forward to doing something every day? And of course, now I have found that for many, many years. And for him, it was, it didn't matter if he liked it necessarily, you know, Um, and he did pursue a passion on the side and he became a bit of a a rock star, Um, but he kept his day job and would tour and take leave of absences from his stable job because he knew that the rock star thing wasn't going to last forever. And so it's funny how, you know, there are other people that become, you know, someone who like manages an office at a, at a mid-sized company. And that is a stable job, right? But they might see 20 executives come and go over the years because they're in the experimental crowd, right? They're looking for where's the company that's going to give them what they're looking for, give them the best package or whatever, but somebody else comes in and has to be the backbone of the company. And those people are finding some purpose and satisfaction in what they're doing. So it's interesting the the way that people can think so differently. And and it's just all about how we kind of conceptualize ourselves in our worlds. So getting to that, there are a lot of people who 
can't really see what they bring to the table. Um, and I'm sure that you find this among the people that you are working with. And I know you like to look at people's strengths and I, I like the strengths assessment myself. Clifton strengths, right? I actually have really liked that um, assessment. It helped me kind of like understand my own place and where my shortcomings were in certain things. And so, uh, but you are a person who looks at a person overall um, in their strengths. And so when someone is struggling to find their path and they, you know, and you're like, okay, well, like, let's look at a, a list of your strengths. Tell me what you're bringing to the table. And they really can't because there are those people out there that just can't put themselves in that reflective position. How do you help them get there where they can see what their strengths are and help them kind of hold that as something that is true for them. What I think is really interesting is people that I work with, I see I see two different, usually, I see two different types of people. Either they know exactly what they want, um, whether, you know, whether they're a career strategist or an experimenter, and they say, this is what I want, help me figure out how to get there. So it's more action plan, let's figure it out. And then there's the other group of people, which is I think the group that we're talking about here, which is people who are so confused, so turn around, they're in the middle of a hurricane and they don't know which way to go. And it's one of those things where there's so much, um, what I call momentum in that, where it's, it's, there's so many other factors that are sort of adding like fuel to the fire almost. And so my very first thing that I do with most people before we even get into, you know, discussing path and purpose, cause that's like a conversation that you can really only have when you're, when you're calm and you're, you know, well thought and, and you can kind of articulate what you want to do, or you're at least in a space where you can kind of feel your way to it. Um, if you're in a, if you're in the middle of a hurricane, the very first thing that you want to do is just slow the momentum. So there's probably things like, you know, my boss sucks, my company, I don't like my company. I feel like I made a total mistake. You know, all of these sort of things that once you start talking about it, you're on a downward spiral. It's like pushing a car down a San Francisco Hill. It's like, <laughs> it's, there's no stopping that sucker. Like it'll just go. So the very first thing is just to slow down, like kind of un, you know, just put everything like lower, lower the pressure on yourself for how all this stuff is. Instead of asking the question that you're not able to answer, answer a smaller question. So instead of saying, what's my purpose, you want to say, how do I make my life more purposeful today? And so that'll kind of slow the momentum down. Once you're in a place of kind of feeling like you have like the, that the sea is settled and there's no more hurricane, there's three different things that I kind of tell people to do from a strengths inventory standpoint. The very first thing is to write down your own self, um, self strength. So literally jot down a list of 50 things that you're good at. And it doesn't have to be career related, it could be totally unrelated. So like, for one thing, like I love gardening. So that's one thing that I could write on my list. I love going on walks, I like all this stuff. So if you can say, you know, I'm really nurturing with plants, I'm very physically active, like these are things that I'm good at, these are my strengths, go through 50, 60, 70 things, highlight the things that you think are most exciting to you that you would say, maybe not from a career standpoint, but just things that you're good at, that, that when you think about doing those things, you get excited about. Um, some people aren't in a space to reflect. And I think that's a really good point to bring up. Like some people aren't equipped to do that. And that's, especially early on in your career, you might say like, I don't actually know what I'm good at because I haven't had enough time to gather that data what you can do is do a more psychological uh, study or, or um, like a Clifton strength, like a formal assessment, mm -hmm. or there's like this as another one. Um, but those, those give you more general questions where it's, how would you respond in this situation? Would you do A or B? And all you have to do is answer it. And it's on a scale of, you know, somewhat agree to somewhat disagree. And then it, you have to fill in, you know, where you kind of stand on the thing. 
So that'll pop out some strengths and you'll be able to kind of get more guidance that way. The third thing that I like to tell people to do, and this is, I think, a lot of things that people overlook is just send a text message or send an email to your friends and coworkers. Hey, I'm trying to figure out my strengths. What have you found that I'm good at? And what I found when I did that is there's so many things that I like one of the things that I think I'm really good at is kind of strategizing from a business standpoint or from a marketing standpoint, being really strategic. And as I was talking with some of my coworkers, they said, yeah, 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 you're really good at that. We get whatever, whatever. Like they kind of were like, <laughs> that's old news. We understand that. But they said that they added onto the list and they said, you're really good at taking whatever that strategy insight is and presenting it and almost having it be like a workshop or facilitation with other people. And they said, we haven't really worked with someone who can take that level of information and research and data and condense it into a presentation and present it in a way that people are able to understand it. And so I'm like, oh, that's actually something that I really, really, really enjoy doing. Like when I think about that, that's what I would love doing. And so that kind of helps you pull the thread of what are the things that I want to do? And it's going to be a lifelong journey to kind of figure out what your purpose is. Sometimes you'll be on the path, sometimes you won't. But I think aligning with your strengths is the easiest way, in my opinion, um, because it's stuff that you're naturally already good at. It's stuff that you naturally already enjoy doing, whether you can articulate it or not. It's something that you naturally gravitate toward and that you're, you're kind of going to continue building for the rest of your life. Um, so that's where I like to start. It's kind of with those three different inventories. I like those as well. And, you know, when you said that if your friends reflected your strength, that's interesting because as you're reading, I'm like, well, of course, and that's how you're able to write a good book too, because you took all that, all that, the data points yeah. that you're collecting and presented them in a really easy way for people to kind of grasp hold of the concepts. So it looks like your friends are pretty accurate, right? So <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Cause I'm like, I never, if, if you would have asked me even like my book came out in June um, of 2020. I'm like, if you would have even asked me a year before then what my strengths were, I would be like, I could tell you, you know, I'm good at whatever Clifton tells me I'm good at, yes. but I wouldn't be able to dive into the level of specificity. And the thing that I think people look for often when they're trying to find purpose or excitement in their career isn't the general overview. It's like, everybody wants to be a teacher. Everyone wants to be an uplifter. Everyone wants to feel like they're helping the world somehow, like generally speaking across the board, that's what everyone wants to do. But that doesn't, you don't get that excited if I'm just like, oh, I'm educating people. It's like when you get more specific about what you're talking about, what topics you're in, what, what, how you're uplifting the world, that's where things start to pick up. And that's where the, I think the excitement and fulfillment comes in for a lot of people is the more specific you get. And I think using other people as a sounding board gets you to that level of specificity a lot faster than if you were to just kind of do it on your own. On the flip side of this too, for the person who maybe wasn't feeling too confident and goes into one of these assessments and then sees their strengths, because we all want to go, oh, but how come I'm not this? Mm -hmm. Or how come, like I always I even share with my clients that when we talk about strengths, I'll be like, well, you know, because you know, I'm, I'm really good at, at these certain things, right? Like strategic thinking and visionary and stuff. And that's the kind of way that I've lived my career. Right. And, but what I found was that like, I have a heck of a time, you know, getting things done in time frames and things like that. So I'm not an executor. And what was it? Consistency is like 32 of 33 or whatever the whole big assessment is. But it's funny, you know, like I'm always like, oh, well, 
I'd love to be that person that gets up and does the same thing every day and has this great routine. And I'm so stable and everything else. It's just not how I live though. But what I found was that I then looked at my friend set and I have all these like major, like extreme athletes in my close friend circle and personal trainers and all these things, these people whose lives depend on them being consistent, depend on, you know, their, their business depends on them being consistently who they are every day and showing up and doing these things. And you know, so that helps, right? And you look around and see, well, it's not about like, what are your shortcomings? So then you can go, oh, how come I can't? It's like, well, then how do you use it where you can put your strength out in front of you and, you know, find the ways to help, you know, kind of pull in those other things that just kind of get you to that next level in your support circle or in your team at work? How do you use that at work? So I think a person kind of like looking at their strengths from whatever assessment it is, you know, on one hand, certainly kind of like gives them a better sense of like, oh, this is how come these things continue to happen, like on the positive end, right? Like these are those things they can trace back to those strengths. And then on the the things where they've kind of been like, well, how come I always fall short over here? It's kind of good to look at, okay, well, now I understand how my brain thinks better. So now I can look at how do I kind of build that into my life so that it's not like that I wish I was something. It's like, oh, so I use this other strength to figure out how to get that into my life, even if I'm not the one that's propelling that part of me. I totally agree. One of the things that that actually came up as you were talking about that too, is I had a one of the organizations, because I do business, some business consulting as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an organization that we we did this exercise with them, just with their executives and their, and their director level um, team members. And we said, hey, everyone fill out your strengths. Because I was just curious, like, from an organizational standpoint, mm-hmm. that this organization with executives, my my own bias is that executives should all have strategic level thinking, or they should all be, you know, more in the influencer category or whatever. Um, and what we found was that most of their team members had a lot of heavy uh, strengths in the execution category. Out of the four categories, they were heavy in execution. And I was like, wow, this is a big um, hiring bias because your teams are only, and not, I mean, they wouldn't have known this otherwise, but like you, you, you want to work with people that are most like you. And that happens a lot with people when they're hiring, they look for, you know, your strengths or the things like your personality characteristics or things that align more with what they do. Um, and yeah, so I think what you're talking about where it's like diversifying your teams and add and having it be like the balancing act of, of one person and another person fitting in, you know, filling each other's uh, weaknesses where it's like, oh, I'm really good at that. You're not good at that. Great. I'll do that for you. And you can do this for me. And like, that's really, really important. Yeah. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Yeah. Well, and I do a lot of relationship counseling and then I also do some like business coaching counseling, I call it. But, um, but on that end, right. Looking at that, I always think of the companies that have had a really solid track record, but they really never change. Right. Those are those businesses where you might find that there just isn't a lot of like visionary or strategic people in that, in the head of that company in the heads of that company, because they're really good at just kind of keep doing what works right. And being good at that. And so it's, it's interesting when you start to look at what are the traits behind the scenes. And this also happens within couples and that's a whole other conversation. So, but we also always gravitate initially to the people who are most like what we knew originally from our families. But anyway, I'm going to divert us back to the business <laughs> end of things. Getting to uh, towards the end here, I have a couple more questions for you. Um, I think many people know that a good bit of silence can be important to, you know, as a listener and to 
figure out what's going on around you. But can you talk about what can happen when you, for those that that maybe don't quite get how silence can work for them? Because I think people always think of silence as like awkward silence and mm-hmm. silence is really an asset if you know how to use it. And can you talk about what you have found when a person can do more listening when they go into a room than talking? So the thing it's, it's really, I feel like other cultures maybe don't have this issue as much as like the United States might, but I agree (laughs) because we have like from the U S um, there's a lot of, of people thinking that whoever talks the loudest is more correct. And if you look at like social media, it's like whoever gets the most likes, they must have the, you know, the correct opinion or whoever has the most followers has the best opinion. Like it's whoever can speak the loudest and speak first is usually what people, at least from our psychological perspective, like from our cultural perspective, we think that we need to be, in order for us to be successful, that we need to be the ones that are talking or we need to be the ones who are the loudest or we need to be the ones who speak first um, in order to be heard. And I, while I think there's some, some validity to the, your message resonating with people, I also think it's important that you take a step back. And actually one of the chapters in the book is about speaking or, you know, how silence is golden. The idea that you actually learn more when other people are speaking or when other people are presenting their perspective, there's so much more learning in that, that you will, that can inform either your business decisions or your team's decisions Um, moving forward. And I think one of the things that I like telling people is like, if you look at some of the loudest, one of the case studies that I put in the book was Marissa Mayer, who who was the um, former CEO of Yahoo. Oh, yes. Yeah. So she went into Yahoo. um, I think it was in maybe the early 2010s. And she, her very first thing was to tell people instead of listening, because normally when CEOs are new people, you know, new executives come into the company, their first step is let me assess kind of what the situation is, what's going on, where the disconnects, what are, you know, what are our issues? Her very first thing that she came in and did was this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. Cause she wanted to mimic Google where she had previously worked and said, this is how we're going to make things. And I don't care if this is how it was done this way. This is what we're doing now. And she found that a lot of her team members were adverse to that. And she actually lost a lot of good people. And, and the culture became extremely toxic because people were tattletailing and it was more finger pointing. And it was, you're not doing what Mrs. Mayer wants. And it was very like not a healthy culture. And I think if we look at the way that listening impacts teams, there's a lot of trust in actually sitting and saying, okay, Colleen, like, you know, if you're my supervisor and you, if I'm, if I'm saying this is a grievance that I have, if your immediate thing is to talk over me or to say, this is what we're doing instead, I'm not going to feel heard. And I'm going to feel a little bit distance in that relationship. Um, even if you're not in a leadership position necessarily, like if I, let's say we're colleagues and, and I say, Hey, I have a question. Can you help me with it? And you say, I don't need to hear the question. Here's what you should do. I'm going to be like, she clearly doesn't understand the nuances of this conversation and therefore can't make an educated decision. I mean, I know you're very educated, so that was just an example, but, but it's, it's like, I have team members that I work with that too, Yeah. you know, where it's like, I, I go up and say, what should I do here? And they say, they'll prescribe something without actually knowing mm-hmm. what the situation is. And it's like, there's not a lot of help there. So I think, I think that's kind of adding, reminding people, you know, in the book saying like, just because you can speak doesn't mean that you always should. It's, it's usually <laughs> better to err on this, on the silent side and not say something that you might regret versus saying something that might erode trust or may cause some sort of friction or toxicity where you didn't mean to. 
Well, yes. And if people could just remember that alone, that would get them <laughs> very far in life. And I loved reading that story about Mayor at Yahoo, because I think we have this perception that when someone gets to a level like that of like, you can't get higher than being like Google, Yahoo, mm -hmm. Facebook, all those things at the executive level. And to think that that person got so far and then just got it wrong is, you know, speaks volumes for how you really need to look and listen to the culture of what's going on around you. And uh, so that's a really valuable lesson in listening better uh, and using silent, like literally not speaking and looking around yeah. and seeing what's going on around you. So um, I want to finish up with talking about vulnerability. So of course, as a therapist, I'm always trying to get people to be more vulnerable. And I love that you had a little chapter in there about, you know, why and how vulnerability and empathy must show up on the path to success. So can you share some of your own experiences where you had gotten a lesson in how being more vulnerable and gaining some empathy for either a person or a situation you were in, you know, really helped you along your path and, and how it enhanced your work now? So I, I want to start off by saying, I, and I, I hope that you're the same way, Brene Brown is one of my idols. So as I was, um, Brene Brown, who's the, the shame and vulnerability researcher. Yes, she, of course. I, yeah, like I have every single one of her books. Every time that she does a talk or, I mean, her even her podcast now, like I absorb every piece of information that she has because I think her message about vulnerability being the catalyst for creativity and innovation is, is powerful. And I think that we, mm -hmm. a lot of times, and I say, you know, me specifically, like I'll go into situations guarded before, before I even walk in the door, I am guarded because I don't want to feel weak or I don't want to feel like I'm in a place of, of not uh, knowing enough or not being enough. And I think that just the reminder that like, you don't have to know everything and that's okay, but you need mm -hmm. to show up and be able to, to have those conversations anyway. Um, one personal example that I had was actually at my, one of the previous companies I worked at, I was managing a marketing team and we were hiring for a marketing uh, manager position the employee, we had a bunch of people that came in. Everyone was like somewhat average. I was kind of like, all right, like good talent, good talent, not exactly the person we're looking for. One lady had come in um, and, you know, had was phenomenal. I was like, this is one of the best people I think I've ever met, just period in general. Mm -hmm. um, but she, at the end of the interview, she said, hey, just an FYI, I got laid off from my last job. I'm seven months pregnant. Like, I don't want that to, um, to sway your decision. Like, I don't want you to feel like you need to. But this, I'm just saying, like, I want you to be aware so that when I start, I'm probably going to have to take maternity leave immediately after. And I was like, oh, that's literally not even not even on my mind. Like, I would rather hire the right person and, and wait, you know, let you have a kid and then come back and be part of the team. But part of that was I, I am not married. I do not have a child. I don't even have a dog. Like, I, for me, I was so out of left field where I'm like, I understand I understand the importance of obviously maternity leave and I understand the importance of like mother parent or mother child bonding. Totally get it. I have never had to experience that. And so my level of empathy for that was, I didn't really have a point of reference. Like I was kind of like, I had parents, like I know what, what that was <laughs> like, but in terms of like, I'm like, I'm sure that she's going to be feeling a lot more, uh, a lot of, she's probably going to have a lot of problems. Like as we're, as you know, her newborn in the first year, the first two years, like that, I'm not even aware of, she's probably gonna have to take time off like early, you know, 
if some, if her kid is sick or something's happening, like there's going to be a lot more that I need to understand and able to work with her better because her needs are obviously she has a life outside of work. And so I need to be able to empathize with that. So what I did actually in that situation, because I, I literally, when I say I was vulnerable, I felt like I, I had no clue what to do. And I knew enough to say that I didn't know enough, but I brought it up to my manager and I'm like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't, do I, do I like buy a book about it? Do I do whatever? So I started <laughs> following a working mother's blog actually um, for a couple months. Cause I was like, I needed to kind of see, immerse myself in this. Cause we all have content bubbles, kind of like the things that you're like echo chambers of your own opinions. Of course. And, yeah. And so I was like, I need to get out of that and figure out like, let me dive, you know, knees deep into this, <laughs> to this mommy blog. And it was fascinating. Like, there were so many things that I didn't even realize that if I were to talk to a working mother now and be like, wow, you have to deal with that. And they'd be like all the time. And so, you know, you have to, you have to leave work early to pick up your kid. And I was like, well, obviously that's a thing, but I didn't think that that would affect your meetings and your hours and your, all this other, like working on the weekends and all this other stuff. So yeah. So even just like putting yourself in a position where it's like, I don't know enough, but being vulnerable enough to admit that you don't know enough, I think is, is miles ahead of what most people would do, I think they would probably just back up and say that, you know, she's an employee, this doesn't need to affect her work, blah, blah, blah. Like that would have been the easier decision is just treat her like everyone else. But the fact is that people are people and they're not robots. So you kind of need to figure out how you can interact with people on an individual level. Yeah. Well, and that, I mean, that was a, an amazing way for you to take on how do I figure that out? Cause it's literally the definition of empathy is like, how do you figure out what another person could be going through, right? Like it's, you're never going to really know there, you're never going to really be in their exact shoes, but you know, how do you at least get a, get an idea of what it might be like to have their experience and, you know, kudos to that woman for showing up at the job interview and stating that right then and there. And yeah, I mean, like, you know, you have to, you have to kind of put yourself out there some days, but that was really amazing on your end. And I think a lot of people could learn from that example of like, right? Like how does a young guy figure out what it's like to, to be a working mother? Well, there's there's like that, like that, you just go to the internet and start looking and go, what could I do to get more of an idea of what this person's going through? And that's for any people, you know, like other different things. We obviously, we have a lot of going on in our culture, right in our society right now around different cultures and prejudices and things like that. It's always like about like, well, what can you do to put yourself in a place of understanding their perspective better. So kudos to you on that. And so, um, so this would, uh, leave us at a really nice place to end the interview here. And, uh, before we go, is there a website that you'd like to give people where they can reach you if they want to work with you and who is your ideal client? Well, thank you for having me. This was really awesome, amazing, and fun. Um, if anybody is looking to get in contact with me, um, benjaminpreston.com is my website. Uh, yeah, all of the information there, I have courses, books, if you want to work one-on-one, totally good with that as well. So my ideal client is anybody who's in their early, probably early 20s, trying to figure out career kind of progressions, decisions, figuring out purpose, that sort of thing. And then if you're a later, I would say like a later early career professional, like late 20s, I also help out with kind of career navigation and figuring out next steps. So those are typically the people that I work with. 
but benjaminpreston.com is the is my website. Well, fantastic. And your book will also be found on the Coaching Through Chaos bookshelf on Amazon. And I was really happy to have you on, Ben. This was a fun conversation. And I know that the audience can uh, gain a lot of insight from it. So thanks so much for being with me today on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Did you know that each time you enter Amazon to shop and you go in through my storefront at amazon.com slash shop slash Dr. Colleen Mullen, a small portion of everything you purchase for 24 hours goes to help support the cost of running this podcast. So go ahead, try it out. And while you're there, you'll also find some of my favorite self-care items along with the Coaching Through Chaos bookshelf where you'll find the books for every guest we've had along the way. Thanks so much for supporting the show. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview. I always love when I feel like I click with one of my guests. If you know someone who could benefit from Ben's services, I'd love for you to share this episode with them. As I set up this episode, we are often running into 2021. For me, one of the difficulties that I had with managing my own chaos was feeling like I was stuck in limbo between working remotely and when I was ever going to go back to my office that I was paying very good money for. And I decided to take charge of that and calm that chaos by making uh, an executive decision to go fully remote. You know, what I found and what many others have found is that good therapy happens when the client is comfortable and the therapist understands them. And, you know, we've all been schooled that therapy settings are important, but you know what? They're really not. And I think we've known this all along because good therapy happens, you know, all the time when we work out in the field and it's done on the fly in street outreach programs, it's done in schoolyards and in very cold clinical settings and institutions. I mean, nobody's comfortable in a cold tile floor with no cushions on the chairs, you know, and now good therapy is being done in the comfort of clients' homes, their cars, their backyards, wherever they are most comfortable. Now, if you were thinking about starting therapy, but were put off by the idea of therapy over Zoom or on the phone, I hope you give yourself an opportunity to try it out. Now, if you've wanted to work with me, what it means is that I can now do therapy with anybody who has an address in California, and my coaching services can be done with anyone, no matter where they live. You know, as far as the coaching goes, that's relationship coaching or coaching you individually about how to have a healthy relationship like, you know, yourself or business coaching around improving your leadership skills and confidence or improving your team morale, or even just, you know, if you have a specific goal, you don't think you need therapy right now, but you have a specific goal that you want to make, or you want to find some confidence to make a major decision. You know, coaching can be really helpful during that time too. So on that end, I'm really easily accessible. You can just send me an email, drmullen at coachingthroughchaos.com, or even a DM on Instagram at Dr. Colleen Mullen. And whether you reach out to me or to another therapist, please do so if you have been really struggling through this time. It really can help. As I head out of this recording this week, I am going to express some gratitude to Steve at Podcast Mansfield for the fantastic editing of my interview segments and to you for supporting the show. If you are finding things that you can take hold of or change in your situation, I'm wishing you the strength and clarity to manage the chaos that comes with it. Until next time, take care.